Hi, I'm Melissa Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. In this episode, I got to interview Becky Miller. Becky is the executive director of the Arizona Transit Association. She's been with ASDA for about 16 years, the first 10 of which she was in the administrative arm of things and now serving as the executive director for about five or six years. Becky shares with us how the focus of ASTA really shifted from a legislative focus to advocacy when she transitioned in as the executive director. She speaks with passion about the communities that ASTA serves and talks about how the organization has gotten creative about continuing to be a resource to the transit service providers and mobility managers throughout the state of Arizona during the middle of this pandemic, including delivering the annual conference virtually. So without further ado, let's talk to Becky. Welcome, Becky. Thank you so much for joining me on Moving Arizona. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So for the people that don't know you, especially our younger folks in the mentorship program, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and where you work? I will. I will. I'm originally from Iowa and I moved to Arizona in 1983, 84-ish, and got into the Arizona Transit Association and let's see, I've been here 16 years. So, you know, 2004, that time frame. And I came from the charter school system. And prior to that, I was with Salt River Project in project management for 13 years. I answered a lot. I was at the charter school, uh, the business office manager, but, you know, the hours were long. And I don't know, I was just looking for a change, something different. So I answered the ad. And I got the part-time job because I knew QuickBooks. And I was part-time for maybe two months. And then uh, the executive director asked me to go full-time. And I said, oh, I'm a mom. I've got all these. He said, look, just try it. And if at any point you feel like you can't do both things the way you want to do it, then you can go back to part-time. So 10 years later, I'm the executive director of the Arizona Transit Association. The Arizona Transit Association as an organization is a 501c6, which between a C3 and a C6, the main difference is we can lobby. We can have a lobbyist on staff. We can have a lobbyist under contract, which is what we have. Policy, AZ, John McDonald, and Dana Paschke are our lobbyists. and. Basically, there's a state association in every state in our country, and we're all different. We're all structured differently. Some of the transit associations around the nation are actually under the DOT, part of the DOT. Uh, We are not, although ADOT is one of our strongest members on the board. And Arizona is actually one of four states that does not have dedicated funding for transit. One of only four? Yeah. 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 Ashto does a really nice job with their annual report on transportation where they list all that. They go through all the 50 states and they identify what funding they have for transportation. So there's four of us, four states that do not receive dedicated funding for transit. So in the four states where you don't have any funding, you have to work really hard 
you know, we haven't gotten dedicated funding, but we have facilitated some legislation that allows counties to leverage some tax situations to get funding in their counties. You know, we have to be creative. The other things that the association does are trainings, advocacy, education. We do a joint conference with ADOT. We have a golf tournament, which is more than fun. I'm a golfer, so that's sort of my favorite event. And, you know, we would really take on anything that that made sense. Our board is made up of 25 organizations. Some of them are, are permanent, like uh, Valley Metro and Mountain Line, the permanent transit systems. And then we have a split with private consultants on our board, as well as COGS and MPOs. So we have a really diverse board, I think, that is super engaged. And for anyone that works for a board, that's exciting, which is one of the reasons I've been here going on my 16th year. I think we're effective and I have a lot of resources. There's just two of us in the organization as paid staff, myself and Cindy Lozano. And in order for us to get done the things we do get done, we would have to have a strong board with a lot of resources. And we do. You now also have a contractor represented on your board, uh, not just the consultant community. Yeah. A lot of uh, mixed perspectives uh, as far as industry goes. Um, but you mentioned that ADOT is one of your you know, strongest supporters or most active members. Most people think of ADOT as responsible for our highways and the interstates and things like that. Can you explain to folks a little bit why ADOT's participation in the Arizona Transit Association is so important? Yes, definitely. So Jill Dusenberry is the manager for the multimodal planning, the transit grants, that whole area. And so Jill is the ADOT designee to the as to board. And that group, that transit group that Jill manages, they manage all the, the FTA funding that comes down for transit, not for highways, but for transit. And I'll just throw out some, and these are funding streams, 5310, 5311, 5307, there's a bunch. Jill Dusenberry's group manages all those grant applications that come in from the state of Arizona to receive these federal funds. And, you know, think of 5310 program designees or subrecipients, if you will, as your mom and pop social service groups around the state. They may have only one vehicle that, you know, at this point in time during COVID is maybe just delivering meals or medications or things like that. Yeah. And then 5311 funding is more of a an established fixed route type of funding for larger areas. And it just goes on from there. There are actually hundreds of these sub-recipients throughout the state. And that's right. Outside of the Metro Phoenix area where the city of Phoenix is a direct recipient of the FTA funds. And then they have sub-recipients like the other cities that are in the metro area um, or even Tucson. I think Tucson might be a, it's a direct recipient as they well. Are. So it's, they are. Um, those two metropolitan planning areas are covered by the two big cities, but then the rest of the state, whether it's a county and MPO, COG, 
you know, small nonprofit, they're all sub-recipients to the state DOT, which is not uncommon. But when you think about Arizona and our concentrations of population, it's like the Metro Phoenix area has the majority of the population followed by the Metro Tucson area. And then this huge geographic span Mm -hmm. of cities and towns that all have to have a mechanism for receiving the funding so they can provide the service. Yep. Yes. So when ADOT pays their dues to the Arizona Transit Association, that covers all of the 53 tens that receive funding underneath them, not just in the current year, but that has ever received funding. So let's say 20 years ago, you received a vehicle through the 5310 program and you stay on the ADOT. I don't know how long they stay on, maybe till the vehicle comes off of lean or whatever those circumstances are. Then they will sort of drop off if they're not receiving funds anymore, the ADOT oversight, if you will but they always stay a member of ASTA. If you have ever come under as a subrecipient, it doesn't matter to us. You're now on our radar. You're part of the fabric of the communities in our state. And the fixed amount that ADOT pays us every year, the actual membership under that grows because more vans and more organizations receive funding, but we never drop anyone off. Same way with, you know, uh, Meg, and the city of Phoenix manage those, the 5310 program, because they are direct recipients. Same thing. All of them are covered under ASTA. There, it makes no sense for us to exclude anyone at any point in time. We need everybody. Well, and they need ASTA because that's access to current information. It's access to potentially policy changes, um, access to legislative changes that could impact them additional funding sources, um, training, education, yep. all of that. And you might drop off the radar of, you know, the direct recipient, but, you know, if you're providing a service or you end up, you know, providing a service, at least you're informed. Yep. And then during COVID, you know, I, I didn't anticipate this would happen. FEMA worked with the DOT and then went out to, so the FTA, Region 9, all the regions, and said, we're going to provide face masks for our transit folks in every state. And and the FTA then reached out to every state DOT and state transit association, and we worked together to get those face masks out. We mailed out 5,000 face masks in the state of Arizona, to the tribal nations, to the city of Scottsdale. Nobody was excluded. It had nothing to do with your membership with ASTA or anything like that. We just took the list that ADOT had for 10s, 11s, and then FTA had another list. It felt really good to actually do something, to provide something. That was early on. That was mid to late May. It just felt good to get it done. And wasn't the timing of that? Pretty interesting because it was was kind of kismet. Yep. It was exactly when some of them were opening up again a little bit. And we had made some pretty solid protocols for social distancing and and wearing masks. You know, the governor's saying, you know, this is how we're going to do it in the state of Arizona. And it just as that had happened, 
I had mailed those 45 boxes, I believe, and they literally either received them the same day as that announcement from the governor or within a couple of days. And it was it was just bizarre how that happened. Responding proactively to an opportunity to help people, though, but that's yeah. kind of your MO. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of how ASTA works, though, right? I mean, as long as I've known you and I was really started getting interested in supporting ASTA when you were finally appointed as the executive director, selected as the executive director. But it's kind of how the organization works. Everybody just sort of rolls up their sleeves and does what needs to be done. And it's all for the better of the industry. Thank you. Thank you. And you have been, Melissa, you've been so instrumental. And I don't know if I can say this online and you can edit it out if you need to, but... (laughs) You're fine. What a gift. Uh, When I did get the director job, you reached out to me and no one did. I got flowers. I got great congratulations, emails that I've saved in a little kudos, you know, inbox. But you reached out and met with me and just asked me if I could have anything... I wanted as an executive director, what would that be? And um, and I said an office because ASTA had been working from, from the home like we are now, but we didn't have it in the budget to pay for office space. We had been at Valley Metro free of charge and all our files were stored there and stuff. But I just felt like Shoot, if we could have an office where Cindy and myself could be housed even together in the same office space. And you put that MOU together with Hill International. And um, I don't want to say a star is born. It isn't quite like that. But it really was a platform and a, and a level of confidence in, in me and the association that you um, just opened up and, and gave us. And my first retreat, which would have been literally a month or two later, Uh, The theme of that retreat was, what would we do if we weren't afraid to fail? And that's what you gave me. Like, I picked something that I knew I could not have, and then you gave it to me. And we're still very strong partners with Hill. And, you know, it was a a good foundation for me. They're a great company and, you know, Mike Smith over there and Tom Spearing when, when he was part of Hill yeah. International. And that's the thing I think people don't realize is sometimes we want something and we think, okay, this is impossible because I only know one way to get there. Right. And I will never forget that conversation. I'm a big person as far as like, if you had a magic wand, what would you want? And let's just start with that. Right. And so when I asked you that, you're like, well, I would like an office and one for Cindy. And it would be nice if we had windows and some trees and it would be awesome (laughs) if we were in in this area. And it was down by the Biltmore because that's where Larry's place is. You know, it's like you're, you were going through and ticking off the list of things that, you know, like, okay, if we're talking through magic wands and I'm like, well, you're describing the Hill International office. And we, I didn't even know you guys were there at 28th and Camelback. And like you said, my home is at 24th and Camelback. You're right. I was describing something that you could picture because you were there. Yeah. I didn't even know existed. 
And Hill is so project oriented. So they had their office suite, but the majority of their employees in Phoenix work on site with clients. So we had all these empty offices and I thought, well, you know, how would the guys feel about an in-kind sort of arrangement where if you had to go out and lease office space, but they just kind of gave you that office space, loaned it to you for an indefinite amount of time, you know, like what would that, what would that look like for them? How would that work for them? And, and what could ask to do for them in exchange for that sort of in-kind participation? And it worked out beautifully for them. They loved the fact that they had empty offices that they could let you guys use and then got recognized as a whatever level sponsor. Yes. It was so mutually beneficial, really. And then the just the interaction then between Hill and us and understanding what both of us do, I, I don't know. It was just fantastic being housed in the same space. Yeah, I think they really enjoyed it too. Like they, I had so many people comment about you and Cindy and your energy and how <laughs> awesome it was. And you guys would laugh and, you know, it was just like you brought a whole different level of enthusiasm and exuberance to the office that everybody just loved. And, you know, a lot of times, regardless of which side of the sort of fence you're sitting on or which side of the table you're sitting on, you're like, oh, I can't afford a sponsorship of X. Or, you know, you're from the from the association side thinking, well, I really would love to do Y, but we can't afford that. And if we just throw the stuff that we want out there, maybe there's a way to work something out so that everybody gets what's best for them. And and then we have our magic wand scenarios. <laughs> yeah. The other byproduct that came from that was at that time you were holding, I think, WTS meetings in the conference room there. And Cindy and I, well, I had been on the fringes of WTS and Cindy had never been involved. And so we, because the meetings were there, like I was on the, uh, the program committee. committee for a year or two and I loved it. And I don't know, Melissa, if that would have happened Maybe it still would have happened organically, but it was so easy because it was already happening like 10 feet from my office door. So, and I forgot that, that the program committee with WTS was fantastic. I felt like we had quite an impact that year. I would encourage anybody, if you want to get involved with WTS, you know, I only know the program committee, but wow, I really felt empowered and like we had an impact. Thank you for saying that because whether it's WTS or, you know, any other organization getting involved, but particularly when it comes to programs, you know, you, you get to have a little bit of a voice in helping to educate people in the industry. And that was what I always found cool about working in programs because you kind of just get to be in this group of people and brainstorm of what do we want to hear about? We want to hear about this project or we want to hear about this program or what this agency does or funding or you name it. And it's actually, it's another magic wand situation. It's like, okay, we have this amazing industry that literally touches absolutely everybody who lives here. And what do we want to know about it? And who do we want to talk to? We have a vehicle for that conversation. Exactly. Yeah, it's really exciting. I felt really... You know, I was involved before I was the executive director, but at that point, Asta was just like 
I was a member, an individual member. And one of the first things I did as an executive director was say, okay, ASTA should be a corporate sponsor of WTS. And we've been a corporate sponsor ever since. And I feel super proud of that. Cindy has been really involved with WTS. She's now in the mentorship program with you, Melissa. And it's like a pay it forward kind of thing. You know, the fabric's there and, and you can participate at any level. You can just show up and, well... Now you don't show up and have lunch and hear a speaker at all, but you know, you can participate virtually now in just the conversations for a nominal fee, or you can get very involved, you know, from any level. Men included. Men included. (laughs) Yes. Men believe that women should be advanced in the transportation industry as well. Yeah. In fact, you know, if I look back over my career, my strongest supporters and biggest champions mostly were men. Yep. Yeah. I think as far as my career, it's been a little of both. Mm-hmm. And um, the ASTA board evolved when I first started to work with ASTA in 2005. The board was all men. And over the years, now we have women on the board and for the most part, every single woman that has come onto the ASTA board, especially while I was in the administrative role, they all reached out and encouraged me and provided that support. I had men do it too. I could name almost everybody on the ASTA board who were in support of me. But the women really reached out personally and helped me. So I think it's been 50-50 for me as far as male-female impact on my career. Well, that's a That's a leap. If somebody doesn't know you or didn't observe how instrumental you were to the growth of ASTA before you were the executive director, to go from being the administrative sort of arm of things to the executive director, that's kind of a jump. It's like the Mary Peters story of she was a secretary and then she ended up being the secretary of transportation for the United States. You know, and to take that leap, having support to do that would be really important, I would guess. Yes. The other thing that was really instrumental for me, and it was before, I don't think Jim Dickey, as the executive director at the time, was even talking about retirement. But I was at a place where, you know, sometimes you wait for everything to line up. Your kids are graduating high school. You know, you you feel like you have more time to focus on your professional, personal development. And ASU has a nonprofit management institute. And the association is a nonprofit. And the knowledge to manage a nonprofit, as far as ASTA was concerned, was just sort of handed down. You know, Jim was a history teacher who worked at ADOT and then went into the private sector. He certainly was knowledgeable and did a great job. But I felt like I'm going to take this. I'm going to try the ASU Nonprofit Management Institute and get certified. So if it ever does fall into my hands, hopefully I won't make a bunch of mistakes. And that's really what springboarded, you know, the vision that would I even attempt to apply And after that, I took ASU's nonprofit executive leadership. And again, these were not huge time commitments, you know, eight classes for one. The other one was a cohort of 15 people for six months to a year. It took a couple of years to get it done, 
but you could still work full time and get through it. So that's what I did. And in the midst of that, I found an amazing mentor, Dr. Thede, Cindy Thede at ASU NMI, that really was instrumental in anything I brought to her. She walked me through it. And then even during the application for the executive director job, she gave me that extra edge, I think, of confidence. And the confidence that if I didn't get the as the director job, that I could go to another nonprofit and do okay. And here I am. And I'm glad I was able to stay with BASDA because this is where my passion is at. And you, you know, the 5310s and 11s, and when I say though, those numbers, those funding streams, there's a picture of a hundred and some people, faces all over the state that I know personally now that have come to the conferences, that call me and email me, and we're a family. It's true. Transportation is a big, small industry. Yeah. Transit as a subset of that is even more so. And I think, especially, you know, thinking about how different it is to try to provide public transportation services outside of the metro areas. You know, there's so many challenges that sharing best practices and sharing resources is just absolutely critical to their success. And there are a lot of people that are really dependent on those services. Yes. Oh my gosh. A lot of people that you just don't even realize. You know who speaks to it really well is Bernadette Niffin at the San Carlos Apache tribe. She's very outspoken. And oh, I wish I could remember all her writer stories. The young man that took their services to high school every day. And then the driver would just formed a personal bond with this individual and just kept encouraging him when he was going to drop out. And, you know, there's millions of stories that they share, not just the tribal folks, but all the communities that have these small transit systems that provide services that these individuals would not be getting around, wouldn't get to the doctor or the library or any of the places they need to go that we take for granted because we're still able to go or we go virtually. Yeah. You know, my father in Iowa, they're elderly. They have no internet. The senior center that they used to go to, and the, and the senior center has a bus that would pick up individuals that can't drive for the noon meal. Now with COVID and through the pandemic, they've reversed it where they're still getting meals, but they don't come to the building. That vehicle now takes 50 meals, you know, and they deliver them between 12 and 1 to all of the people that used to come there physically. So I'm telling you, here's the menu for September. And I walk through it with my dad. And I say on Thursday and Friday, instead of two meals, let's get four delivered so that on the weekend, you have food for the weekend. Yeah. So those are the things that these social services, I gave an Iowa example, but that's happening in the Arizona communities. So um, it's essential, guys. It absolutely is. And I think someone who shared information with me that was extremely eye-opening was Chris Bridges, our chair. And he's the MPO director for the Central Yavapai Metropolitan Planning Organization. And, you know, he talked about their veteran community, but he also talked about the elderly up in Yavapai County and how Yavapai County is highest suicide rate in the United States for elderly and that's because they're so isolated. And, you know, you have these 
community centers where they used to be able to go and at least see their friends and and things like that. And now they can't even do that. And just, you know, to provide a meal, let alone thinking about this environment where those of us that can connect even virtually are struggling with feeling isolated and how much worse must it be? You know, how much more critical is it for us to make sure that these transportation services, the services that now are converted to delivering meals in many cases is not disrupted. Exactly. Because like you said, they were going to the senior center in person, but to reverse that. So at least the meals hopefully are coming to their home, but the person delivering the meals may be the only person they see all day long, the only person they talk to. And it's essential. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And thank God for the CARES Act. Right? Oh my gosh. You know, so surprising. I don't know why, because whenever we go through reauthorization and we don't know if Washington's going to even send us a penny. Yeah. They turn around with the CARES Act and just so unexpected just to get that acknowledgement and that affirmation. Really, I think to have the CARES Act funding and have that acknowledgement and have the money flow immediately like that is it was just unprecedented in any industry. Well, I think something that people maybe don't give a lot of thought to is that public transportation or transit oftentimes really serves those who are most vulnerable among us. People that have no other way to get to a doctor's appointment or school or work or you know, a pharmacy for their medication or to get food, things like that. And it's sexy to think about rail vehicles and it's sexy to think about our super cool freeway system and all of these kinds of things, transit-oriented development and economic development and all of that. But when it comes right down to it, our industry fundamentally, I believe, is about serving people and transit serves the people that need us most. Yep. I agree. I agree. And that was one of the shifts when the ASTA board, when they put out for a new executive director five, six years ago, they actually went through a metamorphosis, if you will. I don't want to say their focus was only legislative, but it was pretty legislative focus coming into that new executive director opportunity. And they took a lot of time and came back with advocacy We need not only the legislative piece, but advocacy is an important function that we would like to expand on. And that's really why I applied for the job. The advocacy for everyone that needs transit, but the population that you just described, Melissa, is near to my heart. And it it was easy. It was easy for me to say, oh, yeah, I can totally do that all day, every day and all day long. And we have a wonderful COGS and MPOs in our state that manage that in their region as well. We have mobility managers from each of those regions that really, after I became executive director, the mobility managers mobilized and they meet formally and they trade best practices. And we really have, I think, a, a maturing transit fabric in every region of the state And I don't see that necessarily in other states. When I go to national conferences and I talk about what our mobility managers, along with their planners in each region, is doing and how the DOT 
has dedicated funding for those positions. That's not happening in a lot of states. So we're fortunate that ADOT believes in the role of a mobility manager and planner in each region and supports it with training and education that we do jointly. Everyone that I've met in the industry in this state, if you're not in it with your heart and your soul for every individual, the ones that need it and the ones that just want to ride light rail whenever we get to do this to a baseball game again, everyone has their heart in this. Transit is, it's fun. It's a family. It's a community. It is. It's an inspiring family to be a part of, for sure. Yep. Shifting gears just a little bit, you talked about change and the organization when you came on board as the executive director, adopting a focus of advocacy and evolving. And we're in an environment right now where we are needing to evolve things. And we've been working really hard, you and Cindy, especially on how we stay engaged and maybe take advantage of this environment to broaden our reach when it comes to the ASTA ADOT conference. Do you want to talk a little bit about what our plans are and how amazing it's going to be? The pandemic rocked all of our worlds. And for the most part, you know, even big consulting firms shut down to just labor expenses only. Anything non-labor, they're not paying. And ASTA did a similar thing. We went bare bones. We canceled every... um, We had a social media contract with a firm that just rocked. They were very instrumental in getting our advocacy message out there during the um, Prop 105, was it, Melissa? Uh Uh-huh. Proposition 105, when they tried to... One! And we... Yeah. Against what I'll say, well, I'll call the Koch brothers. We won. And the whole nation was looking at because it was going to set a precedence for future initiatives on ballots. And we won. And I'm not saying it was because of the ASTA social media or our advocacy, but we were part of it. Yeah. Just about every organization that supports transportation that yes. was allowed to yes. was out trying to educate people about what Prop 105 really was. And it would have been landmark in the sense that had it passed, it would have been the first time that a publicly voted on and supported plan for transportation was overturned. What started out as opposition against the South Central light rail extension turned into, thanks to dark money from the Koch brothers and others (laughs) turned into a campaign against rail, not just light rail, streetcar, commuter rail, any kind of rail from that point forward would have been prohibited for the city of Phoenix, which is absolutely ridiculous. Right. Absolutely ridiculous. And devastating and devastating to our nation because they would have taken that same format to every state in the country. We won a no vote. That was a huge success. So then the pandemic happens and we had to cancel all of these contracts, our website guy, just every contract you can imagine. And we had collected most of our money for an in-person conference for April of 2020. And as things drug on, we had to refund some sponsorships, some of our exhibitors. And so, you know, we're a small organization. We don't have a ton of reserve money to operate through some, some rough years, if you will. So I had some board members, and Melissa, you're one of them, 
this brain trust, I'll call you and Vinny and the DOT, ADOT, Jill Dusenberry, you guys all brought some ideas to the table for new revenue streams, revenue streams that if you're having a pandemic, they still work. And if you're in our new normal, they'll work then too. And be, I think, super beneficial to not only our members, but people that are not members of ASTA. And I think we're calling it ASTA U. You know, we haven't, as of this taping, quite told our board yet, but we're within days of telling the board about this and getting their feedback. But ASTA U would allow us a vehicle to provide certifications down the road, cohort opportunities for intense study with a small group of people. It will also allow us to have trainings that would happen a couple of times a year, if you would, that you could count on, okay, every six months, we're going to be able to get this training. I'm just giving examples now, drug and alcohol, if it's ADA training. So I've had the opportunity once this concept from Melissa and Vinny was conveyed to work with a couple of firms and get some things going, which you will see hopefully in the fourth quarter here of 2020 and definitely the beginning of 2021, because we want to provide value to our members. We want to attract people who are non-members to become members and just provide that education and advocacy for our members to be high quality targeted information right here locally would be a virtual concept. These are not designed, at least at this point, for in-person. It's all virtual. It's a revenue stream that will allow us to continue our work even when we can't have in-person conferences, those kinds of things. What's exciting to me about it is that I feel like we're in an environment where we have such extreme constraints on us. Everybody does. Everybody who's smart should. And for a lot of our members, you know, we were talking about this greater Arizona audience of people that are not in the Metro Phoenix area, even normally to have access to training that typically was not delivered virtually. It was very expensive for them. They have to take time away from their operation, time away from work, where many times they're very small operations. They have to travel to one of the metro areas. They have to have room and board. That's time away from their families. And for a lot of people, even the logistics of all of that, forget the cost of participating in a training class or program, but even just the logistics of that was a non-starter. Right. For many of them. And now as to getting creative and saying, we have by necessity practically perfected how to deliver content in a virtual format. Right. And as a result, how do we broaden the reach of our training programs, our educational programs, even the conference? There's so much more that can be experienced. Granted, you don't get the in-person interaction with your peers where you're forming those relationships or being introduced to new people to the same degree, but we can deliver so much content to such a wider audience by taking advantage of the platforms that are available to us now. And it's with the conference, you know, 
we're hoping, I think from our conversations, it sounds like we're hoping to introduce that phase one of it as to you, if we end up calling it that, where there'll be some individual classes offered and maybe toward first quarter next year, look at some more comprehensive programs and maybe fall of next year, uh, some other type of programs. At the conference, we are going to showcase two breakout sessions specifically. One is hope-based leadership. The presenter will be Kelly Johnston with the Clarity Consulting Firm. And I have been working with Clarity Consulting and Kelly in, in particular on developing some of the initial offerings that we will have through As to You. And so it's important for us to get her face out there for you yeah. guys to experience to the extent that you can through the annual conference in October. You'll get to see her up close and personal and hope that will instill confidence, you know, as we embark on this As to You adventure. The other breakout session will be Eric Strasberg, and he will be uh, talking about how to lead a virtual team. That's his breakout session. And he is also with Clarity Consulting. And I think you'll find both of them very knowledgeable, calm, interesting, and super informative. Like you should come away from both of those sessions with a change, something that you can utilize, a tool or tools, a lot of value. And that's how we want to ask you to start and continue to grow with immense value and integrity. So we're going to throw both them out there for you to experience them in person at the conference. And we'll go from there. There's a lot. There's a lot of exciting things. We're being a little vague out here because we have actually several different ideas that we're developing. So this is just a little teaser. One of the other sort of trademarks of ASTA is quality. And that's another reason why I feel it's important for me personally, for the organizations I represent, but also for industry to get behind and support ASTA. And the program, as well as the format and some of the things, the technology that you're leveraging to present the virtual conference itself, you know, as to use exciting, that's something that is evolving and emerging and will be rolling out in phases. But the conference itself with technical breakout sessions and keynote speakers and one of the benefits of being in this type of an environment is that there's no travel. So we have access to these national, potentially international subject matter experts to come and present to a much broader audience than we would normally be able to engage. That's true. And that is exciting. It's if you let go of the fact that, you know, most of us desire that human interaction, the in-person, and you let that go and you embrace the Zoom technology, the go-to webinars, however you're visually participating and seeing faces throughout your day. It's not perfect. It's not what we had before, but it's a close second. And I think for the conference, we are really trying to step things up. We'll dazzle you a little bit. And we are, we're having a happy hour welcome the night before where we're going to have trivia and you're going to get an email and whatnot to provide your COVID quarantine photos for a contest. Some of us have... (laughs) My hair looks perfect now, but at one point in time, it was in a ponytail on the top of my head and stuck up like a palm tree. 
because no one was getting haircuts for like four months. (laughs) If you're a short hair person, that does not work. Anyway, we'll ask you to share some of those, those photos and we'll just have some fun the night before the conference. And of course, you know, bring a drink. It doesn't have to be virtual. Actually bring a drink and uh, (laughs) enjoy yourselves. We're going to give out gift cards, just like we always do, raffle prizes from our exhibitors. We're going to still have fun. Maybe reach some folks that wouldn't have been able to participate in person. Right. That's true. We were talking about the April event up in Flagstaff between work travel and commitments on that front. I wasn't 100% sure I would be able to be there, but wherever I might be, hopefully not traveling, but wherever I might be, I can log into the virtual conference and participate in all of the activities. Yes. Really exciting. Yeah, it'll be cool. I think there, you're right. There are people that will be able to participate that were precluded before for whatever reason, travel and and expense, whatnot. Well, I for one cannot wait to see how amazing this is. And I'm sure it's going to be (laughs) also super excited about as to you as the resident shiny object person. I'm like, oh, here's another idea. (laughs) (laughs) I I love your shiny objects. They've been awesome for ASTA and WTS and probably all other areas that you touch that I'm not even aware of, Melissa. I don't see shiny objects. I only see, oh, let me try to implement that. Let me try to make that work in the real world. So somebody's got to have an idea. Well, but then... If you don't have people that can really figure out the logistics and deliver on the idea, that's why teams are important. Team asked is pretty awesome. It makes it fun. That's the other thing, the the breakout session that I mentioned that Kelly Johnston will do at the conference, hope-based leadership. You know, the concept of that is we have been using our resilience, if you will, to get through the last six months, but you still need something that you're enjoying out there that you're working on. And as to you, is the thing for me, that's my hope, that this pandemic is going to bring a stronger state association. And I'm excited about it. I'm excited about how can you actually create something in the midst of a world pandemic, but you can. You can, and not as a pressure thing either. But when you put it out there like that, Becky, for me with this podcast, originally it was a result of wanting to put as many people in front of our mentorship group as as I possibly could. And I just couldn't narrow down the list of people that I wanted to come and talk to them. Right. And then as we kind of got further and further into this pandemic, you know, one, for me to have a creative outlet where I got to talk to the people that inspire me, that was very fulfilling and a way to keep engaged as opposed to watching every second of the news and kind of wandering down that rabbit hole of the hopelessness of like how everything was being reported. But then what it kind of turned into was, look at all these amazing people that are figuring it out. Yeah. They're rolling up their sleeves. They're getting creative. They're not giving up. This is a pause and a disruption to our normal that may be coming out of the other side of it there's a new normal and the new normal could be so much better for everyone if we just focus on that. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Because you're right. The first couple of months, I mean, I turned my computer on. I was working, but 
I was watching the TV, mostly worried about everything the governor said. I'm still tuning into the governor, but it was just that's all there was to take in. And I think it took probably a month. You know, it was probably late April before I'm like, okay, this is not changing. I'm really working from home and I want to keep my job. I want my association to be healthy at the end of this. And luckily, with good board members, productive board members, and really allowing yourself to entertain things that you never thought about before, we're here with outcomes that are happening, productive outcomes. And it is a new normal that that you're right, is going to be better. And we had our board retreat. We've had all our board meetings and they were very productive. Were they as productive as the in-person? I would say they're not as satisfying. That element that's missing that I still think we all need to figure out is that we can be, I believe, as productive, if not more so, in this environment, one, because of the flexibility right? They're 24 hours in a day is what Jacobs was saying. Pick your eight and they don't have to be consecutive because they knew people were dealing with trying to homeschool their kids and stuff like that. But the thing that we still have to figure out is the bonding part. Yeah. Because being in a virtual room with someone is different than being in a room with someone. I agree. I feel like right now, I'm still surviving on the bond that I have with all of you, the history that I have with all of you. And that still works. It's getting depleted every day a bit, but that still works. So for the conference every year, it's joint with ADOT. A certain percentage, this will be their first conference. This will be their first touch point in the transit industry to meet their peers, the resources, the network. Those are the folks that I feel definitely missing out because they need that in-person contact. The others of us that already have that contact, we can survive for a year or whatever we're going to have to do here because we've already met. We already have these things. And, And you know, if I could at any point in time, I would have lunch with you. I would have coffee with you. Those things, you're right. Those things are not, they're not happening. That bonding, that affirmation that we need isn't happening. But to not have this whole visual or the conversation like we're having now where there's some positive energy, there's something you can grab onto without those things. Yeah, we're really isolated, really isolated. So taking advantage of the virtual environment, embracing it just enough to really keep you motivated and positive and, and moving forward. You definitely need to do that. And think about it too, for others that have been part of the industry for a long time, to think about the fact that we are drawing on that reservoir of relationships and the bonding of however many years working together in person, on projects, on different efforts. We've had that interaction and we've built up those relationships, but there are an awful lot of people that are new to the industry that haven't had an opportunity to build up that bank of the network of people to draw on. And for those of us who have that, we really need to think about how do we pay it forward and how do we help bring them along with us? Exactly. So that on the other side of COVID, they're set. (laughs) That other breakout session that I talked about at the conference coming up, Eric Strasberg's leading a virtual team. 
he gives a really concrete structure for consistency with your team. If you have a team underneath you or you're part of a team, in the absence of being able to have coffee together in the office, in that absence, you really have to think creatively on how you're functioning as a team, as an organization. Well, I'm excited. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you're super busy. I, I appreciate you taking the time out, but just kind of as a parting thought, as I mentioned earlier, the inspiration for this podcast was to serve the people that are in the mentorship program for WTS this year. And it's a challenging year to do the program and to feel engaged. Do you have any advice, words of wisdom, words of encouragement that you would pass along? I do. When I took ASU's nonprofit management and their executive leadership programs, I was very late in my career. And I have always said, I wished I had a mentor early on, like these gals are getting in WTS. The mentorship program is essential to identifying your aspirations and really validate and explore if you weren't afraid to fail what would you do? What would you do? And what would you go forward with confidence? And that's what I would wish to have that confidence and the self-assurance. And even if you have to pay, it's an investment that's important. It's super important. And I wish you all the best of luck. And I'm not a mentor at this time, but I believe in this. And I would welcome any phone call from anyone, any email. Hand it out, Melissa, like it's candy because people helped me along the way, helped me see my potential. And and that's all you really need. You've got the vision and you've got the drive because you're actually doing this. You're working full time and you're in this program. This is not a walk in the park. This is yeah. important. And will it will impact your personal life as much as your professional life. So I really want to thank the mentors for taking the time to do this. And the mentees, if you had to have a conversation like Cindy Lozano did with me to say, hey, I'm thinking about taking this program for all the uh, the organizations that supported you to be involved in this, kudos to all of you. I wish you all the best of luck. So I'll pass along that we want them to think about what would they do if they weren't afraid to fail, but then add and let us help them. Right? Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I think, you know, one of the things that that really has been a growth point for me, and I'm sure you could speak to this, Melissa, is that letting others help you and be part of the team and not feeling like you have to own every single thing and you yes. have to personally per- do every single thing and control every single thing. <laughs> It's so neat when you have a team and you allow the team experience to happen. Yeah. It's in the collaboration. It's so much more uh, profound. It, what you think and what you make happen, those are great things too. But when you combine it all and really have a collaborative experience, there's nothing like that. Wow. It's, it. it's totally worth it. And <laughs> You're amazing. Just cannot thank you enough for doing this. I love you to pieces. And I'm so thankful that you are our executive director for ASTA because I don't think anybody else would have been able to get us through this. Thank you, Mel.
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. It was so great to talk to Becky Miller and pretty inspirational to hear about all of the things that ASTA does and is doing, as well as what they're planning to do to continue to serve the communities of Arizona. We wish Becky nothing but the best and know that we can expect to see great things from ASTA in the future. If you want to learn more about ASTA, their mission, and the people they serve, visit them online at asta.org. Next up, we talk to Heather Dalmelin. Heather is the general manager and CEO of the Mountain Line, which is the transit service that serves the greater Flagstaff area. Heather has had her hands full as she joined the organization over 20 years ago, but started her tenure as the interim GM and CEO right as the pandemic was going to hit and was just recently in August, as a matter of fact, appointed as the permanent GM and CEO. So I hope you'll join us next time. And until then, let's get moving.